HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Greg Wank, an accounting and advisory partner at Anshin and a member of the firm's executive committee. Greg is the leader of the firm's food and beverage and branded CPG practices, providing accounting, business, and tax planning services to privately held companies and investors throughout the industry, including emerging brands, manufacturers, distributors, and retailers. A prominent leader in the CPG world, Greg assists the growth of emerging brands as a strategic partner with various investors and accelerators. He also authors the firm's food and beverage industry news alerts, distributes the only regional industry survey, and hosts regular industry events, including presenting to well over 100 companies at Anshin's annual State of the Food and Beverage Industry event. I can't believe I got through that on the first try. Yay. And welcome, Greg. Very impressive. Thank you. The yeah. word industry, industry comes up a lot. Um, Too many and, times. <laughs> well, you, you are, you are like, you are a big cheese. Um, so Ooh. I'm, you know, I'm really just happy to have you on because especially now, it, you know, so I was talking to a friend of mine and we were talking about, you know, our jobs as founders. And I think, you know, we have a lot of hats that we're, that we're supposed to wear and that's fine. And I'm not complaining about it. I think where a lot of us get kind of tripped up is like, you know, we know we need to keep our eye on our gross margin. We are starting to understand what contribution margin is. We know that, you know, we're keeping our eye on all of these different things. I think, Mm -hmm. um, Sometimes the larger picture finance stuff is just 
confusing for us. And it's almost outside of running the business. And so it is really important that we have people who just do this. You know, we don't think about tax planning. We don't really understand the difference between accounting and bookkeeping at the beginning of all of this. (laughs) I mean, we don't. Like, you know, a lot of us don't. You know, there are founders who do. Um, But I think it's just really important for people to have financial brains around them who can break stuff down. And I guess this is part of my very long-winded way of welcoming you because you are, more than anyone I think I've met in this industry, very, very capable of breaking all of this stuff down to people like me. So I'm really glad you're here. (laughs) Thank you for that. I appreciate (laughs) that. That means a lot to me, actually. Uh, cause I pride myself on that, that that's one of the main things I do bring yeah. to the table. I mean, you also laugh at my jokes, which <laughs> I also appreciate. Um, okay. So we're going to start a, a little bit with just sort of like this, the, the right now, which is, I think it's fairly safe to say the funding landscape has changed dramatically. There are the way that I kind of describe it is like retailers are unsure what to do consumers are unsure what to do. Investors are a little, everyone's like in this like wait and see kind of, which makes everyone feel even more nervous. Um, And the good news for the emerging brands and the small companies is that this is a nice opportunity for like us to fix um, little stuff. You know, I think more easily than maybe the bigger companies that have gotten used to a certain type of faucet that's been turned on that now might be turning off. Um, And so I'd like to just hear your thoughts on sort of generally, without even knowing where we are exactly, like what are some things that small companies might not be thinking about right off the bat that we can do right now to improve our financial situation and make us feel a little bit more confident? Well, I mean, the number one thing in this environment, because, you know, cash, funding, liquidity have become more scarce, right? So mm-hmm. when, when a resource becomes more scarce, we need to preserve it. So mm-hmm. it's really, you have to know your cash flow inside and out, right? So what does that mean? I mean, yeah. a lot of founders, a lot of people, like you said, that are wearing so many hats, a lot, what I find is a lot of them are, are really, they focus on their P&L, right? Mm-hmm. They, they focus on what their financial statements look like. They don't focus on what it all means. Right. right. What, what, what is it? You know, yep. I mean, a financial statement itself is just a tool. It's mm-hmm. a piece of information at a point in time. But what are the messages underlying that, right? What is this really telling me about my business? But you can't manage in this environment just by checking out your P&L once in a while. You right. need to take a look at the cash flow. Like what is happening in terms of my most precious resource, which is my working capital, right? My mm-hmm. cash, my receivables, my inventory, my payables. That's the business, right? So yep. all those, those three or four things that I'm moving every minute of every day, I have to do my best estimates of where those things are going to move day to day, week to week, month to month, so that I can now plan based upon 
what it's telling me my cash flow is most likely going to look like. That makes so, sense? That does make sense. And, and the components of that broken down are, you know, like you said, there's like incoming, there's outgoing, and there's basically what you have in the bank. Exactly. So what are, what are the resources I'm starting with? Mm-hmm. And then not just what's my gross profit, what's my contribution margin on my expected sales. Right. Because that, that doesn't turn into cash today, right? You right. ship an order out today. When does it come, when does it turn into cash? And I have to say that is where I think, you know, everyone who listens to this knows that I am pretty honest with my errors. Like I wouldn't call it an error. I would say that I was told at the beginning of this, these are the things that you really need to focus on. Product margin, gross margin. The difference between the two is primarily trade spend. You know, I didn't know what contribution margin was. And mm-hmm. this whole thing about, you know, now now those things are sort of, okay, put those over to the left. Now you have this whole other thing to think about. I, I'm still just getting my feet wet understanding this cash piece, you know, it for, so how do you, what would you say to me? (laughs) So I, so what I, what I say to founders is let's take a look at what your cash cycle looks like, Mm. right? And it's going to look a little bit different. Mm Mm-hmm. Your Based holiday, on your different right. your different channels, your different times a year, absolutely right. So, mm-hmm. you get an order today, or you're expecting an order next week. So you're going to place an order with your supplier today. Mm-hmm. And what do those two cycles look like from from today? On average, when am I going to have to now pay that supplier? And on average, from today. That order I get from a customer, when does it turn into a shipment? And then when does it turn into cash collection from that customer? Right. Right? Those are all different cycles Mm -hmm. that when you then plot this all out, you can't do this in your head. When you plot all this out, that's your working capital cycle, right? Your working capital cycle is how much am I investing in my pipeline of future revenues, future cash collections? Right. So okay. this, this, and, and this is really, Allie, the, the big thing today. Right. That people are super struggling with. Right. Yeah. Because, because that big order you just got from customer X for a pick a round number, $200,000, mm-hmm. just to yep. pick a number. You I'm going to collect, right. I'm going to collect 170,000 of that four months from now. Mm hmm. But I'm going to invest 120000 in making the product in like three weeks. Yep. Right? Yep. How do I fund that, that room? I, I got all that space I now have to bridge. And if I don't have fresh capital coming into my business, if my investors are telling me, look, you got you to gotta make do with what you got, you know, there's not more money coming in. Or right. if you want more money, the cost of it's so expensive Mm-hmm. You're better off not even taking the order. So, right? <laughs> right? So, yeah. this is what we're talking about. That's I, working capital. 
That makes total sense. And I'm hearing from so many founders, you know, founders that are doing gangbusters in sales. They're opening doors, you know, they're getting end caps, they're, you know, and they're terrified about running out of cash. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems almost counterintuitive. I, I mean, this sounds very rudimentary to you and probably to a couple people, but it sounds really counterintuitive to think that you could be having your best sales year ever and run out of cash and be done, you know, because, yeah. because, you know, the, the, the bridge between what you're putting out and what you're getting back is timed poorly and, you know, you don't have that kind of, I guess that like war chest to, to fill that gap. Um, and the reason it's counterintuitive yeah. is because you've been, what's the right word? Um, conditioned. Conditioned. Yeah. yeah. You've been conditioned to chase the sale. Right. You've been conditioned to grow the top line. Right. So now if you started your business two, three, four, five years ago or more, as a founder, you're conditioned. Right. That top line rules. But the whole game just changed. Yeah. Yeah. The rules of engagement have changed. Now your investors are telling you that's not good enough, right? So you talk to investors as much as you talk to, you know, the brands. Does everyone kind of realize that you know, I I think I've used this analogy before. There's been 10 years of like, run as fast as you can in this direction. And then literally almost kind of overnight. I mean, it wasn't, but it kind of felt like it. it's like, you know, slow until (laughs) it's fast kind of thing. Yeah. They're like, wrong way. You know, like I picture like a kid going for a soccer goal and, you know, all of a sudden, they're like, no, the goal's in the other direction. And <laughs> you now have to make a very sharp U-turn. Um, and that leaves some some slack, right? There's like, companies don't move that way, especially companies that deal in labor and in goods and in trucks, you know, yeah. and in distributor distributors, distribution, like... <laughs> You know, and and do they realize that they've kind of put, they've kind of put some companies into a pickle? And again, I think the smaller companies, I think we're in better shape in a, in a, because we're, we're more nimble and we haven't gotten almost like, you know, that, that conditioning. I mean, there are people, you know, they're, they're 25, $50 million in revenue companies that are not profitable. What happens now? Yeah, I think you hit on the head. You just nailed the most vulnerable. The most vulnerable are the companies in the middle. They're not big enough yet to be big, and they're not small enough to be nimble. Right. They're the most vulnerable, and now the rules just changed. And we work with a lot of those companies. That's Those are our clients, right? right? And, and all the conversation. And by the way, what you also didn't mention, not only did, did the rule book change, but they also changed – the shape of the playing field with mm. inflation mm-hmm. and COVID. Yep. Right? Yikes. So mm-hmm. so everything changed. I mean, imagine in the middle of the worst inflation in what, 40, 50 years? 
they spring yeah. this on you? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. wait a second, but my freight costs are quadruple. My qu- right. my freight costs are up literally over a hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for a few months there right. last year, right? Yep. Like, yep. and you want me to now to be deliver tomorrow to right. deliver EBITDA, you know, positive EBITDA. Right. Like, like, wait, that doesn't compute. So do they know that they've done this? <laughs> the, yeah. they. they <laughs> I yes, don't deal they, with them. Like they're not yeah, my, you know, yeah. those are not my investors. Um, so, I mean, yeah, you know. I mean, the investors that know the space well, that, that are very active, that have large portfolios, they know this isn't like, hey, figure it out. See you later. Right. They can't do that to a company in that 15, 25, 35 million range, right? right? Because all they'd be doing is signing their death warrant. Yep. And then it's totally. And then everybody wrong. loses, right? Yep. Which no, no. So who wants a, a game where everybody loses? So, so no, I think the ones that really know the space, if you have the right investors who get it, who, when you tell them that freight costs have doubled from last year, they're like, yeah, that's what everyone's telling me. They're not like, we'll figure well, out something. How come you didn't get it? Yeah, yeah, I mean, right. yeah. How come you didn't go buy freight from someone else? You know, mm-hmm. like a, 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 a you know a, a less a less astute investor or a less experienced investor might say. Right. Right. And that seems to be another piece of this puzzle too. You know, where it's been. You know, I always talk about like film school in the '90s. Like everyone's been a founder and everyone's investing. And it's, you know, it became like a, like a thing in the last however many years, because I think it looked easier than ever to build a brand. And perhaps it was in the sense that Mm. D2C made things very, look very easy and packaging got very much democratized. And, you know, there was a lot of innovation, I guess, um, but there were a lot of, I think, inexperienced investors, you know, making valuations a little bit zany because they really mm-hmm. wanted to build their own portfolios and they wanted to prove that they could get the good brands. And like the whole thing just kind of got super, super whipped up yep. um, and then just feels. And so what do you think is going to happen? Well, I, I think you've got a few parts to this, right? Mm-hmm. One is it, it truly is a reckoning, right? It, it truly is. I have to figure out if I've got a business that could become sustainable, right? right. Self-sustainable. That has to happen. That has to happen yesterday. And I want to ask right? you a question about that. Yeah. I, a serious question about that because in my gut, Tell me if I'm wrong. The answer to the people listening to that is, are are the margins on the actual goods strong enough, right? Because a lot of us are like, I mean, a lot of us are in positions where we're close to being profitable, but we really want to keep our G&A and we like the headcount the way it is and we've invested in people and we think that it's going to grow and we want to keep those people in those positions, and it's just a function of, you know, maybe six to 12 months of a little bit better distribution and a little bit of shaving off of product margin. You know, maybe there might be a headcount adjustment, but not a big one. 
Mm-hmm. There, there are companies like that where you could be profitable tomorrow if you laid off six people. You know, it wouldn't necessarily be growing very quickly and you wouldn't maybe have like a big marketing department, but it could be. The companies that have to take the really hard look at themselves are the ones where there's a gross margin problem. Is is that a fair way to basic? Yeah, I, I think it? I think that's number one, right? Is not just gross margin problem, but you know, also just sales demand or sales opportunity problem too, right? So even before you get to gross right, profit, right. You know, is my product or products is it moving? You know, scalable things that that I feel like there is market share to to, to win there, and I think I have the right product to do it right. Mm-hmm. That's first. Second, then is we're all delusional f- about that, though. You know, yeah, that, right? yeah, understood. Yeah, understood. Okay. Just letting and, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate that. You know, and that's you know the hardest asse- honest assessment I probably to make, right? Because mm-hmm. it's not hard numbers, right? So gross profit is hard numbers. You can say, look, I don't see how I can possibly get my product onto all those shelves and end up with anything above like 10, 15, 20% mm-hmm. gross profit at the end of the day, right? I, I just don't see it. It's not there. That is the is the issue, right? That is the issue that you can act upon and say, you know what? Either I've got to completely change everything you just said before, my distribution model, right. my my product makeup, my right. packaging, whatever. Can I is there can I change this enough to get that true gross margin into the 30s? Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about the 40s, that. Yeah. You know? so. Cuz that that number is something that, you know, People don't, you know, I always heard 40% gross mm-hmm. margin. That includes trade. That is like, that is what you are minimum. And that's like, including like the 15 from Costco and the 50 from the direct customer, you know, that's you right. really want to be above 40. Um, is that still the case? Well, nowadays you're hearing more fifty. <laughs> um, I mean, not on a fresh product. Know. I don't even. Yeah, I, no, I understood. Yeah. Look, yeah. every category is different. Right, beauty is like eighty. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. So if you're a beauty, so you're go in the into 80s. beauty. Yeah. If you're in frozen desserts, you know you're never going to get it. To, you're not going to get to fifty, right? So right. you know, there's all different parts we know about supply chain and how much trade you have to spend to support. And win right. the shelf space and all that, right? But at the end of the day, you're right. I mean, if you have a business, forget about all that other stuff. Based on your product, your category, your retailers, your customers, your chain, your supply chain, everything, particularly to you. The the reason I said, can I get it into the 30s? Is is an earlier stage company, right? A younger right. company. If I'm a, if I'm in that mid stage, if I'm that 15 to 35, 15 to 50. And I'm still in the 30s, mm-hmm. I got big problems. Right. Because now my investors are going to say, no, we don't expect you to be profitable tomorrow. But like you said, we, we do expect you to have near-term visibility to it. Right. <laughs> right? Six, to, six to 12 months. But we don't see how that's possible for you because of 
because of your cost structure, right. your product cost structure, what your gross margin looks like. We don't see it. But we have other portfolio companies that we do see it. And we're going to give them a little more capital. We're not going to yep. give you more capital. So do you think a bunch of companies are going to go away? Well, I, I think I think what's going to happen is you're going to have some some companies go away. I, I, I'm already hearing more than ever before in this industry, not necessarily going away like I have to shut down and, and cease to exist, but I need to find a partner mm-hmm. that, that can somehow improve all those numbers, right? I need to partner with my co-packer. I need to partner with my distributor. I need to partner with my 3PL. I need right. to partner with a competing brand where mm-hmm. we're all very similar supply chain, but duplicating all of that SG&A. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's right? some, there's some like, what are they called? They're like, um, aggregators or, you know, I'm yeah. starting to hear. Yeah. 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 So, so you didn't really hear that in food and beverage right. much. Right. And the whole roll up strategy, um, which roll up is hard and roll up right. is very hard if, if you outsource everything, because what are mm-hmm. you really rolling up? Right. All right. It's one thing if I control my manufacturing and I could roll up some other companies that don't manufacture. Yep. That might make sense. Right. But if none of us manufacture and we all pool our resources together, but we're still 100% reliant on third parties, mm-hmm. then what have we, we really re- pulled? What do we really right. accomplish? This is turning into a really uplifting conversation. You know, I, <laughs> I was afraid I mean, this was the direction. No, I mean, you go. know, it's funny. I feel it's like I just, I want so. So the takeaway before we go to the break, if you are sitting and you're listening to this and you're a little nervous, okay, understandable. It's it's probably not a terrible time to be nervous. You do not want to run out of cash. The ways that you avoid that are really not just looking at P&L, but also looking at cash flow and your balance sheet and making sure that wherever you can be cleaning up margin you are and improving, improving, improving. Mm -hmm. Um, what, what else can a founder do just looking to like, you know, mitigate that financial scary area? I would, I would go back to improving the, that picture of, my working capital efficiency and my cash flow, right? So if I could, if I can get better terms right. from get my key supplier, right? right? If I yeah. can get paid more quickly from my distributors or my retailers, or if I could do something with my D2C business to get cash more quickly, mm-hmm. if I can make the picture better so that I just bought myself some more runway on my own. And now I take that new picture to my investors and I say, now I need you because it's no longer I'm out of money in three months or six Mm -hmm. months, but I do think in 10 months or 15 months, I'm going to need more money, Mm -hmm. right? So, and we're talking in terms of months. I mean, hopefully it's a lot of months, right? But, But the point is from a positive aspect is being your the best thing you can do to advocate yourself. And I think the big takeaway for this topic is we're, we're done with the days of you being able to convince somebody 
mm-hmm. to, to invest. Right. Those days are over, right? So don't waste your time. Instead, make the picture more investable. Mm-hmm. Mm. I wish we had video and then I could use that little video clip and put it on LinkedIn and then tease everyone to go listen to the episode. <laughs> Cause I feel like that would be amazing. Okay. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break and then when <laughs> we come back, we're going to talk about good things. Mostly. Awesome. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of heritage radio network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm back with Greg Wank from Anchin. Um, Okay, so I think we've talked a lot about the things that can go wrong, the mistakes sometimes founders make, um, a couple of ideas for protecting ourselves from, you know, a, a pretty oddly shaped playing field that just got totally, you know, different language. Um, you've been doing this for a long time and, you know, maybe you haven't seen this precise climate before, but you've seen, you've seen ups and downs and you've seen, you know, cycles, but there are, I think some attributes that you continue to see winning over and over again that are, are sturdier, let's say, um, during, you know, when the big bad wolf blows. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on those. You did have a really good article that I went back into your LinkedIn and found from a while ago. You've done real research. It's not just like, yeah, I think it'd be great to have like a healthy product. You, you actually (laughs) really done a deep dive. So I'd love to just hear a couple of thoughts on things that they're kind of table stakes at this point that we really need to be focused on from an attribute perspective. Yeah, I think so. And I, I appreciate that. So I, I think I, w- I would often get the question about, because we focus on, you know, emerging brands and, and, and higher growth companies, you know, what, what's the common denominators amongst your clients that was, that were the most successful, right? Because we've been fortunate to be focused in this space. I would, I'm going to say for about 15 years that I've been super focused on high growth CPG, primarily food and beverage. 
So, so you've mostly been there, like seeing go go years. So we started, well, right. Or we, we <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it just so happens to have started like right around you know the 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 mortgage crisis, right in two thousand and eight, mm-hmm. right. So parts of the economy were on fire. Yep. In a bad way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and but actually, believe it or not, that's a good segue to what started to fuel the positive hot fire of CPG, right? Because what was going on then was a shift of capital. Right. People saw all the risks now that they were taking and they were looking for better bets. Mm -hmm. It was also some dot-com reckoning that happened earlier in the 2000s, right? And there was a lot of technology uh, investors. And we started to see... Silicon Valley investors pivot towards. I know. I, I think CPG, that was right? part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- this is exactly what started. And that just happened to be when I really, I stumbled into this just through a client who was my first, you know, true CPG, high growth, top line, go, 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 raise money mm-hmm. and get acquired for a gazillion dollars. Like I lived that like in, in like, two and a half years with a client. And I was like, Oh my God, this is like, <laughs> I've never seen anything like this. Right. And now everybody wanted to replicate that. Right. Yep. And everyone knows those, those billboard names from the early part of the 2010s mm-hmm. that got acquired for, for tons of money. And they were like, I'm going to be the next. RX bar. Bye. Yeah. yeah. yeah fill in, exactly. Fill in the blank. Right. Yep. All those companies. And what I learned pretty quickly was the reason everybody can quote those names is because there's so few of them is because there's so few of them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't, that doesn't really get communicated. I know. Yeah. It doesn't. I would. And like, you know, you you said in the first part of our conversation today, like this is starting to get depressing. Right. And that like accountants have this incredible kind of cloud hanging over their heads that like, They've got to be the voice of reason. They've yep. got to come in and be the adult in the room that tells mm-hmm. everybody the emperor's not wearing any pants, right? Mm-hmm. This projection is garbage, right? <laughs> right. Nobody in the room wants to say that. Right. And, and then, but your outside CPA, us, we come in and we look <laughs> at it independently, a little bit more dispassionately. And we're like, hmm. Right. It's a little too aggressive, right? You're being a little too optimistic. I, I've not yet met a company, even the ones you just named. Yeah. Who hit every single thing they plan to hit right. when they plan to hit it. It doesn't happen. Period. Right. So yep. it's it's becoming, you know, through that part where we did start to transition, where we did start to get more educated and realize not everybody's gonna get acquired. Right. Right. And I think as we got towards the end of the decade, really right before COVID, when I was having these conversations with people or with publications or podcasts or whatever it was in 2019, and everybody wanted to know what was going to happen in 2020, <laughs> I, wa- I wasn't the only one. I- a lot of people who feel they know the industry pretty well were saying 2020 is going to be a year of reckoning. Mm-hmm. 2020 is going to be a year where the spigot's going to start mm-hmm. to close. Yep. So, but then and COVID, then COVID happened. happened, right? 
which and yeah. and everything went out the window. Yep. So, you know, it, it's been the hardest time ever to be a founder or operator in this industry. Which gives me hope, you know, Good. in the sense that like, you know, a lot of us are, I mean, we have a situation right now where it's a silly little thing. It's actually not that silly, but it seems kind of like the printing of the package is the big holdup in our innovation. And it's about a 20 cent different, like difference per pack um, to do it one way versus another way. And if we get three more months before we have to launch it, we'll be at a 65% product margin. And if we launch it three months earlier, we're at like, you know, a 50% product margin or whatever the numbers are. And there is a pull from me, very much me and sales to just like, okay, let's just launch it though, because this is a very good retail partner. They're very excited about it. We can, you know, take the hit on the margin, you know, for the first, you know, whatever it is run to get rid of these things, pouches that we have to order. And then there's like the other part of my brain that's like you and operations and, you know, the finance side, which is don't do that. You're literally talking to Greg right now about managing your cash and improving your cycle and making smart decisions. And they can wait if they're really hot to trot for the product, they can wait three months. And if you're going to miss the reset, there are other retailers or they can do a cut in. Like these are the decisions that we're all trying to make right now. And the fact that we're thinking about them to me is the optimistic part, because if we can make it through, you know, the storm, then when we come out on the other side, which will be cyclical, there will be another side. I don't know how many years, but some, then we'll be a much better fiduciary for the people that have invested in us and, and probably a smarter, leaner, better, stronger business. I would hope. I agree with you. I'm not sure there I've ever met a founder who didn't regret chasing a piece of business. Yeah. I mean, I just hear it over and over and over and over and over again. I shouldn't have, done that deal when I did it. I wasn't mm-hmm. ready. Yep. It would have been there two years later. Everyone told me it won't be there. You got to take it. It's not true. Yep. Right. And, I got to go and, back on Slack and Slack my ops head. <laughs> Pardon <laughs> me while we take another break and I go Slack Keely <laughs> and be like, actually, I take it back. Um yeah. No, I mean, it's hard. We like founders got to found salespeople yeah. got to sell. Like we have these like internal engines, you know, you hear all the time as a founder say, you know, learn to say no to retailers. It's really hard to say no to retailers. Oh, yeah. Learn to say no to investors. It's really hard to say no to investors. I, I, I you know, 
But this is the muscle that we have to build right now. And if we build it and we get through, there's going to be more room on the shelf and less noise in the interweb. And, you know, we should be in a better position. Um, okay, back I, to your attributes. Yeah, so looking at the common attributes, right, and recognizing that, like I said, nothing ever goes exactly as planned, right? Mm-hmm. So, and every, even the successful ones, the ones who have had these great exits will lament the mistakes they made, right? They'll, <laughs> like, it oh, usually happened really, like almost too quickly for them to have too many, mis- you know what I mean? A lot of them just like, I mean, except for like a kind bar, you know, the ones that you hear about sort of like the, it took us 25 years and then, you know, everything went well, or, it was a two and a half year thing whirlwind and they almost don't even know what the hell happened. You know, that's even more rare. Those two or two to three year ones. I mean, that's the hockey stick stuff and the, and the, you know, that, that, those are outliers to the outliers, you know, but if, if you look at the ones who, who built a strong business over time, I, I I'd say, you know, one, certainly their product was, there was, definitely stuff substantially unique to it, right? It, it was mm-hmm. something that for whatever reason it hit and, and, and the market wanted it and there was demand for it. Um, and they didn't have to overpay to buy, mm-hmm. to, to buy their customers, right? The, mm-hmm. the customers came at some point in time, the customers came, um, you know, number two, they know their, they know their customers so well, mm-hmm. you know, I know, you know, I'm an accountant, you know, I'm, this has nothing to do with numbers or finance. Right. But I think one of the reasons I, I kind of gravitated to this industry 15 years ago was I was fascinated by these owner operators, like, and I was fascinated by the business, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone likes food. Right. Everyone likes talking about food. Mm-hmm. I, I was th- thrilled to learn how this industry worked. I, I, I couldn't get enough information and I would just sit with my clients and pick their brains in the beginning. I mean, thank them. I thank them all in the early stages when I was not, uh, very experienced in the space, right. You know, I (laughs) big cheese. Yeah. I'm so important. When you were just a little cheese, when I was little, you know, a little accountant and I was, but that's how I learned, right. I learned from my clients and I'd listen to them and they would talk about these things. I'm like, and I would write all this stuff down. Like, Know your customer. Well, duh, of course, know your customer. But no, what like does that they, really mean? they know their customer. They yeah. know like every little tweak. They're so passionate about their product and what it should look like, taste like, feel like. Yep. What not just what it should look like in your home or when you're about to eat it, but what it should look like when it's on the shelf, what it should look like mm-hmm. in your refrigerator or in your pantry. Like it's amazing, right? They, they they're just it's a different level. Yep. Um and the partnerships, right? The other thing, like another common attribute of success is they they knew that this was going to take a I huge effort from tons of people, mm-hmm. not just the people they hired that were so vital employees, but also all of their independent outside people. Right, mm-hmm. their their suppliers and 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 their warehouses and 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 everyone, right? Yeah, and, and 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 all that that they were really good at 
at choosing the right relationships. You know, I, I meet so many companies who, you know, I always like to ask a new client or right before, hopefully they're to be, about to become a client, mm -hmm. you know, what keeps you up at night? What, what are the things that are really concerning you right at this moment about your business? Right. And, 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 and you keep hearing over and over again, I don't have enough control over this. I don't have mm -hmm. enough control over that. I don't know if my co-packer is going to ship me this when he promises me mm -hmm. or she promises me like these, these really micro things, right? These, but these existential things, right. And, and the successful businesses, they get that and they, they, they have this they incredible mitigate. ability yep. to, to mitigate those risks. Yep. Right. And, and spread out, spread out those relationships so that they're not, in, they're not too embedded with just one person yeah. who could do that. Right. Because yeah, that's we had a risky. conversation. I, I was talking to someone, I think on one of these pods and like, you know, fortunately for us, we, no one in the country could make our product in 2019. <laughs> so I got really lucky by that in the sense that I had to go build a relationship with a co-packer who was willing to take a bet on building a line to make my, my product. And mm -hmm what ended up happening was not only that it was like a, a really good relationship just on a personal level, but when everyone started saying, you know, we're getting kicked out for another thing or they just raised our toll by, you know, 20 cents or what, you know, whatever it is, we, you know, I was protected from that by the original constraint of how hard the product was. And I think it's, you know, I, I think now going into this without some of those sort of, you know, vertical integrations, it doesn't make a ton of sense. You know, there are a lot of people mm -hmm. making nutballs, you know, there's a lot of people making bars. There's a lot of people making hydration, fill in the blanks, co-packers, you know, not to say as a rule, they're, they're not lovely, but they're going, they're going to choose the bigger business that's willing to pay them more mm -hmm. unless you have built a deep relationship with them. Same with, you know, brokers and distributors and, you know, everyone to your point across the supply chain, it's, it's worth investing in, you know, and I, I was very, I was the only thing I had to offer them was equity. Um, and so that was what I did very early on. It's not for everyone, but it has been a, a moat around me for, mm -hmm. you know, the last several years, for sure. Well, you have a product that literally no one makes today. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a pretty good moat if you're, <laughs> I mean, uh, but you, you know, you're out how right. to do it. <laughs> yeah. And hopefully there are no hurricanes or, you know, yeah. massive, uh, massive COVID outbreaks. Okay. So unique product, they know their customer and that doesn't mean just like, yeah, she's, you know, 28 to 44 and she <laughs> likes to work out. Like they really know their customer. Um, they build the relationships early on with the people, you know, all along their, you know, their ecosystem. Yeah. Keep they going. know, they know what they don't know. Mm -hmm. They know when they need to Greg. go find the expertise. Right. Right. And, you know, self self plug time. Right. Like when, when do I need to talk to 
someone like Greg or, or a lawyer that really knows the space or the right broker or whatever right. it is, right? Whatever the expertise is that you don't possess, um, where, where it's time to stop figuring it out for yourself. Right. Speaking of that, so the reason why we moved over is because when we were a cooking school, we used a very, very strong, you know, retail hospitality focused accountant, mm-hmm. um, which made a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. You know, the way that our sort of financial function looks like is we have, you know, our our bookkeeper who basically closes the books and fights back on UNFI things and makes sure that everyone's tally expenses are in and that everything aligns. And then our, you know, more like, I guess, FP&A team that, you know, is analyzing the situation and making the forecasts and building the budgets. And, you know, I have a dashboard. And then what do you guys do? for us. <laughs> other, <laughs> other than I know you pay our taxes or you help me pay taxes. And I know that you give me advice because I, I ask you random questions about things, but like, what is, I mean, what is the difference really between sort of like the, you know, those three, like you're not closing anybody's books and you're not necessarily like doing, you know, you know, uh, here you need to look at August because you're going to get a thing and you should, you know, tidy up this thing or are you, and I just don't use you for that. Yeah. I mean, some clients use us for that. Okay. Um, so what we do, <laughs> what do, in, you a nu- do? in a nutshell yeah. <laughs> is it's minute 49, by the way, oh, I wow. just want to no, know. It's funny that like, I'm just now like, what do you do? <laughs> do you and do? it's 48 minutes into <laughs> the podcast, but, you know, it's fine. Okay. It's well, fine. if anyone's still listening, they're or, all still listening. We if have I a haven't very put good... anyone to sleep. No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, when is it time to call you? I guess, you know, that too. Yeah. Well, I mean, so when you need that independent view of things, right? So like my bookkeeping or accounting solution is giving me a financial package as the owner of this business every month. And I'm looking at it and they're giving me highlights and lowlights. And then I, it's already two weeks into the next month. I'm Mm -hmm. too busy to worry about it. I'm going on my, I got other 1800 other things to do. Right. Right. So wait, maybe I should get an independent experts view of how we're doing. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, you know what, we've got to present this projection in order to raise money or to satisfy whomever. Maybe we want an independent person to take a look at this and see mm-hmm. if we're crazy. You know, this right. is our work product. We, we might be missing the forest for the trees here. We, we might be too deep mm-hmm. to see the mistakes we've made, you know. Um, so that's a big thing, you know. So usually people call us, they're referred to us by other clients of ours or by your investors, your attorneys or whoever's in your network or whatever. We get introduced when the company is about to do something substantial or mm-hmm. or they just did something that's going to change the game, mm-hmm. right? They just raised a significant amount of money. They just launched a completely new part of their business. They, they right. 
whatever, right? Something that's about to happen or just happened that they now need to raise their, their game. They now need okay. to deliver more accurate and dependable financial information. They need more predictable right? and, and, uh, you know, projects, you know, they need more projectable financial information and let's see what Anchin thinks because they've been doing this for so long and they work with hundreds of food and beverage companies. Why wouldn't I want them yep. to see if I'm full of hot air or if I'm on the right track? Yep. I know. I'm always so happy that you you look at me like, okay, you know, like <laughs> you're not completely insane. Yeah. Um, and you also help. I mean, this is worth noting. You know, it's it, we've talked about it. It's different for every founder. But you also do help, you know, if founders have a ton of the equity in their companies, which hopefully people are retaining, Mm -hmm. you know, equity in their companies, you also help them with smart tax planning for themselves in the event of an exit or in the event of a big change. And that's actually really important. I don't think we, I don't think we talk about that enough. We just, everyone's like, what percentage do you want to try to have by the end, you know, and everyone's like, ah, hopefully somewhere above 30 or 40, you know, ideally. And then that's the end of the discussion. Um, yeah, that's but, a big part yeah. of our role. You know, we're founder advocates and we, again, you know, we're, we're like, the, we're like your conscience, right? Like mm-hmm. we're like standing there on your shoulders saying, are you sure you want to do this? Because mm-hmm. this is what this means. Right. Like I always say to people, you know, you're going to have all kinds of people around your business who are, who who are there when you run into obstacles and they're going to help you try to overcome those obstacles but then there's other people that are operating at a at a at an even you know more valuable level who are going to warn you about obstacles that you may run into if you don't right. change course yep and that's what we try to do that's that's what we my team, that's what I, like, I preach to them when we have our meetings, like, how have you helped your clients today? Like, I don't want to mm-hmm. hear we got their taxes filed on time. That's mm-hmm. not, that, that, that's not helping your client, right? That's, that's like the easy part of what we do. Yeah. Right. How did we help? How wh- did you ask any of your clients today? How you sleeping? Like what's going on? Right. You know, and that's what we want to hear. Like I always say to people, like if you if you come to us before you do something, we can really be incredibly valuable and helpful. If you come to me after the fact and say, I think I did something stupid. Can you look at this? Right. I mean, it's even like it's the LLC C Corp conversion. It's the debt versus equity. It's all of these things where like and this goes back to what I said at the beginning a lot of us are very good at running our businesses. That doesn't mean that we're financial planners. It doesn't mean that we're, you know, venture investors. It doesn't mean that we're legal experts. It just, you know, and, you know, I think I wrote this in a post on LinkedIn because, you know, even with fundraising, you know, I'm pretty comfortable talking about my business inside and out where I get uncomfortable is term sheet stuff. And mm. governance and pref and, yeah. you know, that stuff that, you know, and why would I be really good at that? I've done, you know, one of them right in my life, you know, like, why would I be good at doing that? Similar to this, like, you know, there's people are trying to figure out, okay, 
if if the equity seems to be, you know, to your point, cash, investors slow down. There are debt options. They tend to be very expensive. Sometimes people think they're a bit less expensive, you know, in other ways than equity. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Those are decisions that we need someone like you to help us make. And that's that's what I, you know, really encourage my clients to avail themselves of, right? Like right. I, I do. I mean, most of my clients do send me their term sheets before it gets mm-hmm. too far along. And even mm-hmm. if they have a great lawyer that knows the space mm-hmm. and it's rock solid from a legal perspective. Yep. There's yep. always something there that someone with a fresh set of eyes is going to say, I think this means this. Did you know that? Like, is that and it, what you're right? And what's do? interesting is that you know my son's in law school right now, and he was telling me about this contracts class he's taking, and he was like so mm. in the nitty gritty, and he loved like it's if you use afternoon versus like after three p.m. or who the hell knows what he was talking about, you know. <laughs> and my eyes started glazing over, and I was like. <laughs> wow, this is exactly the stuff I hate. Like, it's yeah. so cool that you love it so much. I hate it. And I, a lot of founders do. We don't like, and I mean, you know, Chuck's been on this, my lawyer, he'll say like, from a legal perspective, this is fine. This is a business decision. This, you know, yeah. Yeah. and I'll be like, I don't know. I just kind of want to get it done, you know? And again, I've stopped. I've, I've that's bitten me enough that now I no longer just want to get it done. Um, but, yeah, something yeah. similar in our world is like taxes. Like clients always want to know what is, what's the tax ramifications, mm-hmm. and we'll we'll outline that for them, and then we'll and then we'll remind them. But you have to make a business decision now. And I've just given you more facts to help you make mm-hmm. the business decision, right? But you should never do something just because of one of those levers, right? right. There's so many levers, including tax, like. You know, there's this crazy expression in public accounting, like, don't let the tax tail wear the dog. Like, because clients, because <laughs> clients are always obsessed with, I want to save taxes. Right. And I want to do it in the most tax efficient way. And then they're ready to just pick that way because I'll pay less taxes. Right. Okay. But maybe that's not going to end up all in the best decision. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <sighs> So many decisions. So many decisions. All right. Last couple of minutes before we go. I love this. Um, So we've talked a lot about, you know, understanding the demand, understanding, you know, building these relationships, going back to like for the last minute or two, just our financial, what will make us feel, you know, it's like when we talk about teaching people how to cook, there are a couple of things, having good knife skills. Hmm. knowing how to preheat your oven. Like there are a couple of things that just make all of your meals better. And then the recipes almost don't matter, right? Like what are a couple of things that someone like me can try to get a handle on early on that will help me sleep at night? You know, that maybe I might not have thought of a year ago because things were different, but now I'm in this really great, you know, opportunity to get a handle on, you know, well, I think fundamentally, yeah. right? I mean, I, I hate to repeat something, but it it, it you know, it's it, that cash flow cycle. But it's it's your gross profit, right? Like if right. I'm, it's all about gross profit, right? Right, because if you don't have it, there's nothing else you're really gonna be able to do, right? It goes back to what we said a little bit ago about 
there are certain businesses that aren't going to be investable anymore because the, the gross profit thesis isn't there. Right. Right. I can't get it into my consumer's hands cost effectively enough. I just can't. Right. right? Or, or I can. I have to figure that out. I got to figure that out as soon as possible. And it's not, you know, investors will tell you this all the time. Don't tell me, oh, once I get to X million of top line, I'll be right. there. Right. Nobody wants to hear that anymore. Yeah, right? I the- have to say I was early on that. Like I I think anyone who's been listening to this since 2018, like I don't know a lot, but I did know that like that whole volume solves everything yeah. has never been true in any business. I mean, it ha- it's true with our pouches. We do get some cost savings on our pouches, but other than that, like everything just goes up. You know? It, it it's I mean, that's right. Yeah. Small business, small problems, big business, big problems. You know, know. it's like kids, right? I literally was, you know, I was going to write another, another like op-ed for the post about how similar it is having teenagers to having a sub $10 million business. Oh God, that's <laughs> Because it's a lot that's of the great. same pain. You think yeah. that, okay, I've gotten them this far, so things are going to be okay. But then it's like this whole new set of issues. All right. We have to end on a happy note, Greg. Yes. End Let's on a happy it. note. Tell me, tell me something happy to end <laughs> on. <laughs> empower, <laughs> empower my listeners and give us a good, happy thing. I think it's still, an incredible opportunity in this industry because the industry needs innovation Mm -hmm. and the way people are getting their food and what they're eating is just continuing to evolve so fast. Mm -hmm. And when there's change like that, there's opportunity, right? To meet those needs. So I, I, I truly still believe this is a great time to be in the space, but I think all that's happened at the end of the day is the barrier to entry got a little bit higher. Yep. Which honestly is not a bad thing. No, it got a little too low, perhaps, yeah. Yeah, so it was too low, and some people stepped into it because it was too easy. Mm-hmm. And now it's a little bit harder. The wall's a little bit higher. But that, I think that's a good thing, because I think the people now are gonna, who are in it and are going to stay in it or who are going to enter it, are going to be a higher quality situation. Mm-hmm. Yep. So their odds of success hopefully will be greater. Amazing. Okay. That's a beautiful way to end it. I went through a moment where like my heart was racing a little bit. Now I feel a little bit better. So hopefully everyone listening does too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I started this whole thing like it's the how the hell am I going to build this? And Um, I try to be a cheerleader, but sometimes the cheerleader also has to be like, you're probably not going to make that flip. So maybe just like, don't, don't flip, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, Greg, thank you so much for this. Thank you. Thank you for helping me through my life. (laughs) I look forward to more. Yay. So much more. (laughs) And Matt, it's always good having you engineering. I miss the old days. Um, in person. I, uh, my main takeaway from this episode was that the, uh, <laughs> the fresh refrigerated sauces market is like ripe for disruption. And if I enter now, there's only one competitor. <laughs> <laughs>
Yes. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, that's a great takeaway. I, you should do that. Everyone, y'all should just try because, yeah. you know, great. Um, thank you for that, Matt. He always chimes in with something charming. That's great. And um, everyone listening, um, you know, you got this. Keep up the good work. Look at your gross profit. Look at the product margins. Like you do not need a different color corrugate for every different skew. Get these cost savings going as soon as possible if you haven't already. And um, I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.